We have a guest speaker this morning, uh, Philip McCallum. Philip is the lead pastor at Evergreen Church in Bothell, Washington, and uh, he is also the founder of Philip's House LLC. Uh, the way I met Philip is that he handles all of the Pacific Northwest contracts for SAR L Travel, which is the largest uh, travel agency, I understand, in Israel, uh, a Christian organization. And uh, Philip is the one who designed our um, potential <laughs> uh, tour in Israel next year. And uh, it's just a privilege to welcome him and his wife, Leslie, uh, to Life Point today. So will you welcome Philip McCallum? Thank you. Well, thank you, Pastor Jim, and so good to meet you all. I've only met Jim so far on Zoom, and he's taller than he looks inside the little rectangle box. <laughs> and I love your facility here. It is so well done, and, and Pastor Jim said that you achieved a lot of this during the COVID time. And that says a lot about your faith. Uh, during COVID, a lot of us were thinking smaller thoughts, like every day was a choice. But it's good to see a church that was taking advantage of a difficult time. During COVID, I would wake up every day and think, what does COVID make possible that I couldn't do before? And you did something. You created this beautiful facility. And you've got faith to go to Israel. Um, even in the best of times, that's a wonderful choice for any church to make. But particularly at this time. Uh, can I tell you, your church will go. If it's not in September, it'll be at a better time. And whoever gets to go to Israel first will probably have some of the best tours that you could possibly experience. The reason I say that is that I was able to go to Israel immediately after the COVID lockdown opened up and it was possible to travel there again. And I had an experience of going there after Israeli people had not seen tourists for a long period of time. And I was overwhelmed with the friendliness and the connection, the interest, the desire. Um, it's not just about going and seeing rocks. You can see rocks and pictures of rocks, but it's going to see the people because the people are another part of the whole story. There are many believers in the land. They want to meet you. And there's something profound about going on a tour after this war. Every single Israeli person has been affected by this war. And anyway, it's so good to be with you. And to see Jim's regular posts on social media, his love for the people of Israel. You, you realize that our faith began in Israel. We serve a Jewish savior. <laughs> And the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. We're at one of the ends right here in the Pacific Northwest. And the Bible tells us that God's last final act of human history will be Israel. Um, keep our eyes on Israel and being connected with that is so significant to our faith and it awakens our faith. Today, I want to talk to all of us about what you probably don't know about Christmas. Now, maybe you do. Maybe you've already become familiar with what I'm going to talk about today. But there's something about being in Israel that opens your eyes to see everything from a different point of view. When you read the Bible, it comes alive. One of my little taglines in what we do in tours is, tour Israel, it's real, because there's something about being in Israel that the Bible comes alive everywhere you turn, something of biblical proportions took place. And this book that just seems sometimes so remote becomes incredibly familiar. 
And it has real people behind it, real culture, real uh, places. Um, we took a young gal from our church who had just come to faith. She had gone through a university that totally deconstructed anything she believed about God. She came to faith through our Alpha course. And she came to Israel. God provided the funds. And I remember finding her weeping in front of one synagogue we knew where Jesus actually sat, where Mary Magdalene probably was. And she was there weeping long after the tour group had left. And I said, Taylor, why are you weeping? She said, it's real. My whole faith is real. I had no idea how real my faith is until this moment. There's something so profound about being in Israel, particularly young people being in Israel, and seeing how real their faith is. While we were worshiping, I got a text message from a youth pastor in Israel. His name is Sasan Pakhtar. He gave me this little wristband to remember him. Because today, along with many Israelis, he is on the front lines in Gaza defending Israel. He sent a picture of himself at his, his place of, um, you know, watching guard. Uh, he had his machine gun beside him and he said, have a good service. And I showed that, that text to Pastor Jim. And you may think Israel's far away, but you and I are connected with it. And as I looked at that, I remembered how I met uh, Sasson, and the whole story is incredible experience. Um, my mom was a Jew, and that really was not anything that meant much to me until that was much later in life. And I dug into the story and discovered an amazing story of how her family came from Spain, and uh, my ancestor had rescued a whole boatload of Jewish families and settled in New York State. And uh, I went to Israel to explore that story and discover more about it. Went back to Spain with my son. That was really interesting. But on one of my organized trips to Israel, um, I, I said, Lord, I, I don't want to go on this kind of trip again. My next trip that I come to Israel, I want to meet a pastor. Uh, I want to stay in an Israeli home. I want to know the believers here in the land. I, I want to be so familiar with Israel that I can just go back and forth, back and forth, and I have friends, deep friendships here in the land. Uh, a few years later, it was time for our sabbatical, and I prayed, and God led me to a city in Israel called Ashdod. And it's in the Bible, it's called Azotus. And it's mentioned in Acts chapter 8 as the city where Philip was landed. And my name is Philip. My mom named me Philip. When I arrived in the city, uh, there was this sand dune. I was out for a morning run. I saw this sand dune. It just felt like God's Spirit said, Go up on that sand dune and pray. And I did. And while I was there, he gave me a vision of a tour company called Philip's House. Philip had a house in a major city called Caesarea, where he had four daughters who prophesied, and leaders from around the world spent many days, the Bible tells us, in his home. And their lives were changed by being in the land. And I felt God's spirit tell me, begin a tour company where people will come from around the world, and they'll meet Israelis here, and they're going to hear a word from God about their life purpose. I later discovered through a whole series of amazing events that the hill I was standing on was the prayer hill of the leading pastor and evangelist in Israel. His name is Israel Pakhtar. He lived three blocks away. Uh, God led me to his church. It's the only church in the city of Ashdod, a city of 450 or 250,000 people. And their church has been up against incredible odds. Uh, after waiting seven years to enter into their building, they bought for cash. So I think it was about $3 million cash. And they've been blocked by uh, religious Orthodox groups from entering into the building. They were finally able to enter in yet this last Friday night. They had their very first public service. 
And just exciting things happening um, in the nation of Israel. Through that friendship came the birth of Philip's house. Uh, and that brought into other relationships with Arab-Israeli pastors and watching some of the amazing things happening in the land. And then the Sorel Tour Company, which have a huge heart for believers in the nations. And just exciting to see what God's doing. But in July, I felt God taking it to a whole other level and that I should pour the rest of my life into this. Uh, A third of my life I spent in Australia. I spent a third of my life here in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. And I feel like God said the next third of your life is going to be spent focused around Israel. So um, I went and took a, a month in Israel on a prayer tour. And as I drove through the nation, I felt like God said, spend some extra time praying in the Negev Desert. What I didn't realize is I was praying through the very areas where Hamas came and savagely butchered um, so many lives, so many people. And it culminated in the Galilee. I stayed at a beautiful little condo overlooking the lake and spent about a week in prayer and some remarkable things took place. But God just gave me a clear picture. He said that there's going to be a whole new wave of people going to Israel. He showed me hundreds of thousands of people coming to the Galilee. And uh, he said to me that in this experience, particularly young people around the world would flock by the hundreds of thousands to Israel. And as a result, they would have a new awakening and go home and set the world on fire. I then went to a Messianic congregation. That's, in our words, a church. These are Jews who follow Jesus as Messiah. They don't use the word church for a variety of reasons. They call themselves a congregation. So I went to this congregation And the pastor who spoke that day repeated word for word what God had said to me in my prayer time while in that I was in that condo. Their vision of their church was that hundreds of thousands of people would come from the nations. They would be awakened and go home and set the world on fire. And then the war came. And you would think the war would stop this from happening. I actually think the war is part of the process of God waking up the nations. If ever people, good people, were concerned for the people of Israel, it is today. There is a huge divide because this is not a political battle. It is a deeply spiritual battle, Uh, not between political ideologies, but between pure evil, pure demonic hatred. Even secular Jews are using words like satanic, uh, spiritualizing this and the purposes of God. And the Bible reading we have today, which Pastor Jim gave to me to speak from, is dead center in what God's plans are. Today, uh, we're going to be in a familiar patch of ground, uh, the story of Christmas, and particularly this man named Zechariah. Um, I want to read the story to you and then give you five Hebrew words that help us understand what this story means for Christmas, and then from that, what we should be doing to take it home. If you were to go to Bethlehem, to the Church of the Holy Nativity, which is the oldest Christian church in the world, built around 350, 350, that's a long time ago. Underneath the church are caves, and one of those caves is where Jesus was born. Uh, Jesus was not born in an inn. Sorry, that's a mistranslation. Uh, Jesus was born in a house. Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary were highly respected people both in terms of the priesthood, in terms of governance. Uh, they had a place to stay in Bethlehem. What wasn't available for them was the guest room in the house. That was taken. 
And so in every Jewish home, there was a section where the animals lived connected to the main house. The house was built over these caves. And so they took this stable, which was a part of the home, as the place where Jesus would be laid. Jesus was born in a stable, laid in a manger. But there's a whole lot more to that story. You can go down into those caves. But what's another cool thing that took place in those caves is that the very first translation of the Bible was done in one of those caves by a man by the name of Jerome. He translated the Bible into Latin. And while he was translating the Bible, his passion was that people would be able to experience the reality of Jesus in a language that they would understand. He said five Gospels record the life of Jesus, four you will find in books, and one you will find in the land they call holy. Read the fifth Gospel, and the world of the four will open to you. The fifth gospel, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The fifth gospel is Israel. It's the land itself, the land they call holy. When you see the land, you touch the land, you feel the land, it becomes real to you. Um, when I was in Israel on my trip, I took, I went during the war a couple of weeks ago. I just couldn't sit back any longer and watch what was taking place. They give you this little app on your phone that sets off a siren when a rocket comes. And I had quite a few rocket uh, moments when I was there. And you're instructed when you're driving your car and the siren goes off to pull over to the side and get face down on the sidewalk. So I did. I pulled over to the side when the siren went off and I got in my car and I looked down on the ground and there was no sidewalk. It was dirt. And it wasn't just dirt. It was pulverized dirt, about an inch thick. And I had new, I actually had these pants on and I thought, I don't want to get my pants dirty. And But I thought, I don't also want to die. So, man, I'm looking around. Everybody else is face down the ground. So I jumped down. I got face down on the ground. And I discovered suddenly what an amazing prayer life I have. Man, I prayed with passion like I'd never prayed before because overhead I could hear the um, <clears throat> the rockets and then I could hear the Iron Dome taking them out, going bang, bang, bang. And I'm saying, God help us. God bring us through. And then I stood up. It was all over. They have the all clear. And I just realized I was covered with dust, just totally covered with dust. And I began to wipe my clothes off, but then I started weeping. I thought, never have I felt such a love for the people of Israel, the land of Israel, as I do now. And I left the dust on my shoes. It's still in, inside the crevices of my shoes. So I won't forget what God did in that moment. There's something about connecting with the land. It's the fifth gospel that makes all the other gospels open up. I'm going to read to you what took place, the second half of what we heard in the reading. We're in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he's to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout all the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. 
His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my son, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare the way for him to give the people a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, which by the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. I want to pull up five Hebrew words that are going to give you a whole new perspective on Christmas. And these come out of the dust of Israel. And here's the first one. And I want you to repeat this word after me. It'll be a little Hebrew lesson today. Tishri. Can you say that? Tishri. There, you spoke perfect Hebrew. Um, That is a month. It's the first month of the Jewish civil year. And it falls in the space of time we call September, October. You think, well, what does that have to do with the story? Everything. Jesus was born in October. He wasn't born in December. That was a later adaptation that we made to connect with society of the time in in the Roman world. But Jesus was born in October. You say, well, how do you know that? How how do we know when Jesus was born? We aren't told that in the Bible. We're actually told it through deductive logic. There's a little fact when you read the story about Zechariah. It says that he served according to the priestly division of Abijah. And you read a little note like that, and you think, well, big deal. What's that in the Bible for? But every word in the Bible matters. What's it there for? Well, we actually know from 1 Chronicles 24.10 that Abijah was the eighth division of a whole list of priests. We know from another source outside of the Bible. It's called the Mishnah the exact order that these priests served in the temple. So we actually know the exact two times the year when Zachariah served in the temple. And so we know that this event, when he stands ministering before the altar of the Lord, or the, the, the Holy of Holies, waving the incense, this is the feast we know as Pentecost. The Jews call Shavuot. Uh, if you go to Israel today at Shavuot, you're going to get Danish pastries. That's what's served at Pentecost. Pentecost is a remembrance of the giving of the law. It's a remembrance of the death and the birth of King David. And it's the time, of course, when the power of the Holy Spirit came down. So from that, we only have to figure out the normal birth cycle. If John the Baptist was conceived immediately after that, then he was born at Pentecost. And then, of course, Jesus is six months younger than his cousin. And when you put all those numbers together, that means that Jesus was born in September of October the following year. Well, what difference does that make? It might just seem trivial, but this is where it gets really cool when you go into the land. Jesus was born at a time when people were on the move. The world is being taxed. Why? 
they're being taxed at one of the three major Jewish holidays. In fact, it was the holiday where it was a sin to not be happy. Everyone was commanded by God, you must be happy. It's the National Camping Week. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone built a tabernacle, a booth, or Jews will call a Sukkot. And this little shelter, it doesn't matter how poor or rich you are, everyone today in Israel has a Sukkot, whether it's out on their balcony or out in front of their house. And everybody just mixes back and forth freely. It's a little warmer there in October. And so it's an easy time for shepherds to be out in the fields watching the flocks by night or running off to Bethlehem to see Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in the manger. Um, why else would it matter? When John describes Christmas, he doesn't tell us any of the birth story. He simply says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The words in the Greek are, the word became not just flesh, he tabernacled among us. He lived with us. He lived in a tent. He came into the Sukkot. So here's what's really interesting. This word manger is used elsewhere in the book of Luke, chapter 13, Verse 15, manger refers to the whole stable. Now I want you to think for a moment with me. When Mary laid baby Jesus into the manger, the feed trough, it's a bigger symbol of the whole structure itself. So Jesus is laid into the Sukkot, this little booth where friends and families would come to gather together to eat and to celebrate and to be joyful for this whole week of happiness in the presence of God. And that Jesus entered into our world. Now suddenly Christmas takes on a whole new meaning. (laughs) Jesus came to enter into our world to bring joy and joy to the full. Jesus came into our world to enter into our life, wherever it is that you may live. Whether you live in a mobile home or an apartment or a house or on the street, Jesus came to live in our flesh, in our tent with us, and to share our life with us. He is intimately interested in every little trivial detail of your life. There's nothing that escapes his interest or concern. And he wants to bring joy at every single level. Next, we got to meet this lady, Elizabeth. Now, she is so interesting. And again, you're not going to understand her unless you meet and spend time with Jews. Uh, one of the things I love about going to Israel is there's over 7 million Jews to interact with. And you begin to see all these characters of the Bible in a three-dimensional form. On my trip that I took this last um, July, or sorry, this last uh, October during the war, uh, I was invited last minute to go to the biblical site Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was. It's where Samuel heard the still small voice. Um, and it was an incredible gift. But particularly, I was the only tourist that they had seen in two weeks. And so they were incredibly excited to see me. And so they rolled out the red carpet. When I arrived, I was told, don't shake her hand. And I met Moria. Uh, her family were the ones who settled Shiloh. They were the first ones to settle there. They were the ones who did the excavations of the site. You can actually see the holes in the ground where the pillar, the posts were for the tabernacle of God. We know exactly where the Holy of Holies was. You can actually walk there freely. It's a remarkable site. And when I met her, um, Moria, uh, she was a, a very, I would use the word a noble woman, a very distinguished person. 
Her head was covered because no man can see her hair except her husband. And I wasn't to shake her hand because no man has ever touched her except her husband. But she couldn't have been more kind and warm and hospitable. I would use the word joyful. She was very happy to see me. Gave us an incredibly comprehensive tour of the whole site. And as I came away from that, I began to think about the character of people like Elizabeth. Who is this Elizabeth? We're not told a lot, but what we're told is remarkable. She doesn't have children, but she seems to fill the gap of her life without children by becoming a spiritual mother to everybody else. And she has this warm, engaging personality. And so Mary, her cousin, is Think, thinks first of Elizabeth as the person she wants to go and see because she's a safe person. Who's the person you would run to in trouble? Well, that's what Elizabeth was. She was a person you went to in times of trouble. And she was incredibly filled with joy. Well, of course, when Mary meets her, she feels John the Baptist leap inside of her and she begins singing songs. You know, the, the Bible sometimes reads more like a Rogers and Hammerstein musical than, I mean, everybody's bursting out in song at any moment. And she's got this Outgoing personality. And that's the second word I want to teach you. It's the word chutzpah. Can you say that with me? Chutzpah. You may have heard that word before. Anybody heard chutzpah before? Yeah, you've heard it. That is a good Jewish word. Chutzpah is highly prized in Israeli society. Chutzpah is extreme self-confidence and nerve. Um, Jews are just incredibly direct. Uh, they will ask you the most pointed questions. I've been asked how much money I make, all sorts of personal things. Uh, they're just incredibly direct. There's, there's absolutely no filter. They would tell you exactly what they think. Um, and that's exactly who Elizabeth is. Now, we read this story about the circumcision of Zechariah. And we're reading that in a church context. What you're imagining is that you know, Zachariah and Elizabeth are sitting in one, you know, two seats side by side, and they got the little baby, and they're going to bring him up to the rabbi. That's not what's happening. Again, you got to go to Israel to see this, because you can see synagogues that were used in the days of Jesus. And what you would see is that on the first floor is where the men would be, and the women with the children were in a balcony, a mezzanine floor above, looking down over their husbands. Now, the whole idea is that the men would be focusing on God while the women were taking care of the children. So Elizabeth is upstairs looking down over the ceremony that is being unfolding with her husband below. And then it comes time to name the child. And traditionally, he would have been named Ben, uh, Ben meaning son of Zachariah. That would normally be what happened. He would have named after his father. But Elizabeth puts up her hand. She speaks out. She has chutzpah. I want you to imagine. She's not down here beside her husband, you know, jabbing him in the ribs. She's leaning over the balcony and says, No! His name is going to be John! That would be so Jewish of her. So she is a outspoken woman without fear, with a total clarity. Um, when I was in Israel, I was there for the, the three days before the invasion in Ashdod. I lived through the bombardments in my, I was the only person in my hotel that was a tourist. And, uh, every, 
Every night when the bombardments would be going on all night long, my, my room was just shaking with the blast taking place about 20 miles away. And uh, the night of the invasion, the church actually had gathered together. They have Friday night services. And worship was really powerful, really powerful. Because in that congregation, there were over 35 soldiers represented. Everybody was concerned about loved ones in the war. Many people have been affected by the tragedies that you took, took place. And you got to know from their standpoint, whoops, what a funny moment to have somebody call me. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, put your phone on silent before church. What a good idea. Uh, where was I? All right. So we're having worship time. And the youth pastor's wife, the guy who just texted me, she is part of the worship team. And she has got two small kids. And most of us would think, oh, we, we give her a break from the worship team because she's got her hands full. But that's not what they did. The church was singing with all their heart. They're gathering every morning and every night for prayer meetings, praying for God to protect and to bless the state of Israel and to protect the soldiers and the people of Gaza. And as we're worshiping, there she is up at the front with her little daughter in her arms, leading worship and singing with all of her heart and watching the church just sing with passion and praise. And I began to think about people like Elizabeth, the spirit of chutzpah, the spirit of uh, outgoingness in a midst of a world that just wants to shut our faith down. You know, we live in a part of a world where we're afraid to say just the words Merry Christmas. How about you get some chutzpah about you? And speak out at Christmas. I, I see Christmas as the time that the world is most receptive to the good news. At our church in Bothell, at Evergreen Church, God gave us a vision about 13 years ago that we would do Christmas lights. And it just got bigger and bigger. And we are now in the top 10 Christmas light shows in Seattle. It brings 60,000 people to our church. They just run over our whole campus and building. We just give away free cookies and cocoa and welcome them in. And this year we added a movie. And we've already had 1,500 people sit in the room just like this and watch the Christmas movie. These are Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Muslims, the nuns, the people who have no faith at all. And they're here listening to the good news of Jesus. You and I can do a whole lot more of communicating our faith in this dark world than we think we can if we just get some chutzpah about us. Amen? Amen? amen. Do you guys do amens here? Because it's in the Bible. All right, here's the third word, oryx. Um, I, I want you to get this into your your Christmas outlook. I know most of us think about reindeer. Uh, think about the oryx. Uh, an oryx you might know as a unicorn. Because in the Middle Ages, when the knights went to Israel, one of the rumors that came back is that there was this beast that had one horn. The oryx looks like a unicorn, but actually has two horns. But from a side view, perhaps you would think that. Uh, the oryx is mentioned in this story. It says that God will raise up a horn of salvation for his people Israel. Now, a horn in the Bible is called shofar. And it's the horn of any animal, usually a ram, that's blown. It's blown for one of three reasons. Announcing a new year, uh, announcing God's judgment, or announcing the birth of a king. That one's very, very important. 
Uh, but particularly for the announcement of a king in Jewish culture, even today, there's a special shofar. And that shofar is the horn of the oryx. Um, it says here that I will raise up a horn. One day I was in Israel and I thought, I, I want to go to the zoo. I want to see the animals of the world of Jesus. And so as I was going through the different displays of different animals of the biblical world, there was a whole herd of oryx. And I stood there for about a half an hour just watching what an oryx does. I saw a number of the males battling each other. And after all of their battles, the guy who won had his horns up high and the guy who lost had his horns down low. And he would just kind of shuffle around with his hair and horns down low for the rest of the day. And the victorious one would be strutting around with his horns up high. And I thought about this scripture, you have raised up for me a horn of salvation. You see, they were as familiar with that world as you and I might be as familiar with deer or other animals in our world. God wants us to have victory over the darkness and over the evil that's taking place in our world. There's so many promises here about what God is going to save us from. He's going to save us from our enemies. There are people in this world who don't want you to make it. Israel has an enemy called Hamas. Uh, you may have enemies that aren't quite so diabolical, but God wants you to make it. All who hate us, he's going to save us. There are people who want to keep you from making it and to stop you from making it, and God can make you victorious. There are those that... There can be fear within us, and the scripture says that we'll serve without fear. There are things within us that can keep us from being used by God greatly because we're so afraid to step out so that we can serve him in holiness and righteousness all of our days. You and I are saved by grace to live lives of distinction. Uh, The purpose of being holy is actually to be desirable, not to be holier than thou, but for people to look at your life and say, I want to be like that person. I want to be filled with hope. I want to be filled with courage. I want to be filled with faith. I want to be filled with confidence. And that happens because God has raised up a horn of salvation. All right, here's the fourth word. Mikvah. Say mikvah. Mikvah is a bath, but it's a special bath. Jews bathe not just to be clean, but to be religiously, ceremonially clean. Every Jew, male or female, takes a mikvah every day. Uh, it has to have water pouring in from an outside source and then flowing out. Uh, there are a number of regulations of how it works, or you can take a mikvah in the ocean. It says here that you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. So he's called John the Baptist. And what you're thinking when you hear the word Baptist is a baptism service, maybe a tank up in the front of the building or a river or a lake where the baptism is going to be taken, maybe a formal setting where people are wearing white robes, whatever your context of baptism, that's what you're thinking. That's not what John the Baptist did. You gotta think like a Jew. Uh, Jews take baths every day for ceremonial cleansing. I was in Ashdod standing at the beach. This is where Philip was landed by the Holy Spirit. And I was praying one morning. I'd gone for a run, just reading scripture. And this Orthodox guy came running up beside me, his two side curls flapping in the wind. And he started ripping his clothes off. 
And he set them beside me and he started talking to me in Hebrew. I said, don't understand. And he started speaking in broken English. He said, would you watch my clothes? He got down to his underwear. He ran in the water. Then he took his underwear off and he took a complete mikvah bath. And then he came back to me. I'm a total stranger. I told you Jews have a lot of chutzpah. And he got dressed. And what he explained to me was he was on his way between two appointments, between work and something else. And he had to quickly fit his mikvah in. It was that important to him. Jews don't bathe just to get clean, but to become ceremonially, religiously clean. Now, John the Baptist baptizes. What is he doing when he baptizes? Baptizes. There was a ceremony that Jews had for Gentiles. Those are people who are not Jews, who wanted to become Jews and follow God. Uh, they had to be circumcised if they were men. And then they had to have their first mikvah, their first bath. And it was symbolically to wash away the uncleanness, uncleanness of their Gentile identity and for them to become part of the Jewish community. And then they would just take endless mikvahs after that. So now we begin to understand what John the Baptist is doing. You realize when John the Baptist baptized, there were a lot of people who didn't get baptized, and there were some who did, and there was such controversy about that. Have you ever wondered why? He wasn't baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not what he was doing. In fact, later in the book of Acts, his baptism has to be redone because it's not Christian baptism. What was he doing? John the Baptist was calling religious people, religious Jews, to behave as if they were Gentiles and to begin their faith all over again. In our context, it would be like saying to a devout believer in Jesus who was baptized with water and faithful in the word and faithful to church and say, get saved again, again. (laughs) And then I think about this story of Christmas. And every Christmas we come to this image of God coming to us as a baby. And it's hard to be arrogant and proud. And like John the Baptist, we are all being called to begin all over again, to be saved all over again, to come into a new spirit of humility. If John the Baptist could call religious people to repent of all of their religious pride, then at Christmas you and I need to come into a whole new level of humility to allow Jesus to have full possession of our hearts. Here's the fifth and final thing. Goyim. Can you say goyim? Goyim. You're going to hear this in Israel. They're going to call you a goy. And that's not a bad thing. It just simply means you're not a Jew. You see the world from a different point of view. Now, the Jews are called to be a light to the nations, to the goyim, to bring them into the light. And here we're told that by the rising of the sun, who will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This rising sun, it's the day spring. It's Jesus. But, of course, Jews are going to call him Yeshua, that Jesus is the day spring. Now, we're told in heaven there are no shadows. Can, can you imagine if anybody here is into lighting, trying to create a space without any shadows? Even if we had complete circumference of lighting around me, there would still be shadows every direction. In heaven, there are no shadows, no shadow of turning. That means that Jesus himself is the light. And his light is complete and pervasive everywhere. It's just incredible to think about. Well, that light, that day spring, enters into our world. So the main memory that later 
Peter as he writes his letter to the believers, the main memory he has of the supernatural moment of Jesus is the transfiguration, when Jesus shone on earth as he is in heaven, this day spring from on high. And Jesus wants to reveal himself in our dark world. Christmas is all about lights. We put lights to shine in the darkness to overcome. The good news of Jesus is reached the nations of the earth. The scriptures clearly, clearly tell us that the last great work of world evangelism will be Israel, will be the Jews. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Ephesians chapter 2, tell us clearly that God's final plan is to awaken the Jewish people to the Messiah. What is the second coming for believers in Jesus today, the Goyim, will be for the Orthodox believers, the first coming. This is what's told to us in Zechariah. They will look and mourn upon him whom they have pierced. Remember Israel, pray for Israel, believe that God will awaken the Jews. It's important to understand from a Jewish point of view What is the stumbling blocks about Jesus? For many Jews, their understanding of Jesus is he is um, a Gentile savior. First of all, it's surprising to some Jews that Jesus is a Jew. Second of all, it's surprising to them that the word Christ means Messiah. They don't know that. Third of all, they have no idea when they look at a New Testament. They think that a New Testament is a book filled with instructions of how Christians can persecute Jews and put them to death. That's what they think the New Testament is. And then when many Jews who come to follow Yeshua as Messiah, when they begin to read the New Testament, they're surprised at how Jewish this book reads, especially the book we're reading right here. And they realize that Jesus was a Jew, he is a Jew, and that this faith communicates to Jews. You know, when we talk about going to Israel on a tour, there are two ways you could approach it. One is to be in a bus and just see the whole experience from a window with a tour guide going from place to place. But I think it's a far better way is to actually meet the people, to interact with the people. I was sitting in a hotel in Nazareth, had my bags beside me. I was waiting uh, to check out. And as I was working on some things on my phone, a young uh, Jewish guy with chutzpah came up to me and began to speak. And He introduced himself. He had an American accent. He explained he had grown up in Omaha, Nebraska. And he said, it's good to see a tourist in Israel. This was on my October trip during the war. And he said, there are no tourists here. He said, what are you doing here? And I told him a little bit more. And then he told me the story of his sister, who was a triathlete, who had been struck and killed by a motorist. How her mother then began the National Women's Triathlon event in Israel and became very successful. And then his mother died of cancer, and her valuable triathlon bike was then given to a lady who lived in Gaza, on the border of Gaza, in a community that was committed to building relationships with the people of Gaza. And then when Hamas came to her house, thankfully their lives were spared, but they took this bike, this precious bike, that was not only valuable, but had so much sentimental meaning to him. And then he said, I wrote the story and I wanted to get it posted on my social media site. It's a worldwide site of many other triathletes. And he was told that he couldn't post it because it was too political. It so annoyed me that I created my own posts. I put it on all my platforms and on LinkedIn, it actually took off. And as a result of that, a Jewish guy actually gave a new bike to this triathlete. 
they had this incredible celebration together. An entire kibbutz came together, probably about a 100 people. They went for a group swim. Uh, they presented her with a bike, and then she and I became Facebook friends. And I have this vision of a future tour and taking to Israel uh, a whole busload of triathletes to participate in this event. Uh, come to find out, he's got a brother who lives in Seattle, works for Expedia. You know, God is up to things. Now, I can't tell you this guy came to an understanding of who Jesus is, but he certainly experienced something of Jesus through me. You and I are living right now in a time where the world is open at Christmas. I believe Israel is more open than ever. More than ever, this is the time for us to be the good news. You know, when I look at this story, here are five things. Remember Israel. God came first to Israel, and all of human history is going to end with his purpose to save them. Um, speak up here at Christmas. Have that spirit of chutzpah to reach out with the non-believers with the hope and the good news. Surrender to God's plan like Zechariah. He had to remain silent for that whole period of nine months. And there's something about quiet meditation to hear God's purposes. Be saved all over again. Take a new mikvah. You don't have to get rebaptized, but it's a sense of humility to say, Lord, I need you now as much as I did the first day I needed you. And most of all, be radiant. One of my words for 2023 has been radiance. Radiance is not just light, but it's heat. It's not just seeing the fire, but it's feeling the fire. And you and I are the radiance of Christ. And I believe that God's going to do a powerful thing through your church. Um, in this season, it's going to do a powerful thing in your church when eventually we're able to go to Israel again. And I pray, Father, right now, your grace upon LifePoint Church. Thank you for Pastor Jim. Thank you for these people. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come and tabernacled with us and you live in us and you radiate your presence through us. I pray, Father, for a refreshing of joy. In this season, a new hope of new life. I pray especially for those who right now are doing battle in Israel for the safety of the nation. And we pray not only would you deliver them, but would you open up a whole new season of being able to communicate the hope in Jesus, we pray. And use us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.